I spent one year growing my own clothes in my backyard thanks to a miraculous leather tree, which is a, a creation that I've invented through hypnobotany. It's a, it's a brand new discipline of the magical arts, and I'm going to give you all my top 10 tips to uh, recreate this arcane knowledge in your own living room. It's the Stazapod. Let's go. Okay, it's the Stazapod. It's a new year. It is 2022. This is our first Stazapod of this uh, this brilliant year. So a uh, little bit of housekeeping. First up, I have to announce the winner of the Mondo Gecko Super 7 TMNT Ultimates Giveaway. This was for patrons only. All you had to do to enter was to leave a comment, tell me your favorite night from 2021. And I'm happy to announce via Random Name Picker, the winner is Steve Hoker. Steve has been a patron for a very long time. So couldn't go to a better home. And thank you very much for entering. Thank you to everyone who entered. We'll be doing more giveaways as this year rolls out. If you're listening to this and you're considering joining the Patreon, uh, there's a very small window in which you can do so at the upper tiers. Now, the Patreon works as follows. There's a $5 tier, there's a $30 tier, and there's a $50 tier. The $30 and $50 tiers receive one and double the free action figures every two months. Uh, I'm not having open enrollment for the upper tiers this year. It will be locked in place on uh, January 31st. $5 tier will remain open and endless. So uh, if you want to get in on action figure of the Millennia Club, you want to get these free exclusive figures that are shipped out every second month, then you need to be in either the $30 or $50 tier. $50 tier, I believe, is currently sold out. Um, Your only opportunity after January 31st is going to be if somebody leaves the club, there will be an opening. But there is a wait list already for that, so uh, keep that in mind. One final little bit of housekeeping, and this applies to people living in New York State, like myself. Um, There's a bill for single-payer health care in the state senate. And it is called New York Health Act, or NYHA. Um, so listen, we're in a pandemic. Anybody who's listened to any Distazapods know I'm kind of a single-issue voter. I believe that single-payer or Medicare for All is the only step humanity can take immediately that will reduce the misery by quite a bit. And I don't actually think this is a political statement. I think that if you look around the world, if you've ever traveled to other countries, if you've had to utilize health services in other countries, you know firsthand they do it so much better, so much more effectively, and so much cheaper. So uh, I have had my my targets centered on Medicare for all, universal health care, whatever you want to call it, for, I don't know, the past... Uh, eight or nine years. That's been my single issue I've been focused on. There is a bill to make this happen in the New York State Senate. It is, of course, not being covered by the media. Um, And the only couple articles you will find are deriding this plan that it will add instability to the market. Well, uh, this is is an idea that erases the market portion of 
healthcare as it should. This should not be sort of based on the market. So here's what I want to lay out. Everybody last year was waving their banners, saying vote blue no matter who, and we can say honestly, uh, now that we're <laughs> over a million cases in the U.S. in a single day, the idea of just voting in every four-year election does not change things, right? Maybe marginally, but not to the point where people's lives are left better off. So the idea of vote blue no matter who, we've seen the finite end to that. It doesn't actually accomplish very much. What does accomplish a lot is pressuring your local elected officials because they do actually have to answer to you. People at the federal level, uh, you know, we could debate endlessly if electoral politics at that level actually can enact meaningful change. But let's sidebar that for now. The local elected officials do have to answer to you. And they do have to take your calls. They do have to read your emails. So here's your call to action. If you are a resident of New York State, I'm going to post two links. And these will take you uh, to a website where you can look up your assembly person. And you can look up your state senator. And once you do that, you can also get their contact information and you can email and call. I would recommend doing both and tell them that NYHA is a crucial issue to you. In some respects, this may be a losing battle. There are obviously huge interests uh, pushing against something like a single payer. Um, but given the enormous body count, uh, that the sort of private healthcare industry has churned out over this pandemic, uh, I think it's time for them to at least feel threatened in their existence, if not actually change the system as it is. Some battles are worth losing because it does send a message and it does sort of put people in check. So maybe we can't get this bill through, given all the enormous forces rallying against it, but it is important to sort of pick the hills that you die on and fight all the same as if you can win. So again, if you're in New York State, I need you to do that. I need you to call and email your representatives, and I will post links in the description for this podcast and make it very easy to do. And with all that out of the way, let's get to some questions. First question from Gordon McKinnon Hall on our Patreon. I watched David Fincher's Zodiac for the first time after you mentioned it in a recent podcast episode. It got me wondering, are there journalists of any sort in the world of Knights of the Slice? Um, I've never actually thought of this before, so excellent question. I think we can assume there are journalists. And I, you know, as, as with most rules for the world of Knights of the Slice, it's sort of our present day tweaked slightly. So we can imagine that the majority of, of journalists are sort of part of huge conglomerates, right? And all have a sort of vested interest in keeping the status quo in place. And uh, integrity is probably not very high on their list of things. Uh, avoiding precarity is likely their main role in life. 
I think we could also assume that there is a small but very dedicated uh, cadre of completely independent journalists that uh, are sort of self-financed and uh, not part of the bigger machinery that um, upholds things the way they are. I think I've mentioned it before, but uh, if any of these kind of ideas and themes interest you, you can watch on YouTube Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. And I think you will never look at the media in the same way once you watch that. And it's a it's a older film. Uh, it definitely is slightly dated, but I think that it is pretty eye-opening when you sort of, uh, when you turn it on and, and uh, give it a go. So uh, if you want further reading, I would point you towards that. Next question from Charlie Pope. Have you considered a Basenji Cherubium or just a Basenji figure in general? It could work well with Alexander given Basenji's history. P.S. I have a Basenji and I love this breed of dog so much. Weirdly enough that they do not seem to have any toys of them. So if people uh, head back a couple of Sazapods, I tell the story of a adopted Basenji mutt I had that actually saved me and my sister's life when the apartment next door had caught on fire and everybody was asleep. Um, it, so I, I obviously have considered doing dog heads for cherubiums in the future, right? I've had dogs my entire life. Um, it is very difficult because there is such a large variety of looks to dogs compared to something like cats. Like, obviously there's a morphology amongst different breeds of cats, but I would say that there is a greater sort of difference in, you know, uh, variation for dogs versus cats. I, I think that that's, that probably bears out in some, you know, scientific way. So then when I look at the problem of which breed do I select for a dog cherubium, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit vexed. I don't know what the right call is. Um, a Bisenji would definitely be a contender, but the dog that I had was actually a mutt, so it kind of looked like a Chihuahua and it kind of looked like a Bisenji, but it had the Bisenji tail, which I think is, you know, probably its most distinct defining characteristic. But that was 20 plus years ago. So, you know, would I be doing a disservice to the dogs I own now by not, you know, <laughs> Uh, immortalizing them as a cherubium. I would have to have a discussion with them. I'm not sure their feelings on the case. So, uh, you know, a cat head, I think it would be very easy to do as a cherubium. It would be on my top 10 list of, you know, next animal heads to conquer for sure. Uh, dog, I I still have a question mark there. I, I just don't know what the right path is. I don't know which of my pets I should immortalize. And, um... You know, I, I don't think it's likely there will be a dog within whatever the next batch of cherubium heads may be, whenever that may happen. Moving along, next question from Matthew Connolly. Will Verkill ever be made as a rotocast figure like Hob was? I recall seeing a drawing a while back, or was that merely some great concept art? Oh, and yes, healthcare for all NYC. Thank you, Matt, for, for joining the call to action. Um, so, I'm going to guess something here I think actually Matt meant to say Trilobite King not Verkill but I will answer the question both as it's stated and both as I imagine um, the small clerical error may have rendered it so Verkill the Verkill assassin 
Count Verkill, not an ideal sculpt to do Rotocast. Uh, Rotocast like Hob, you know, that process works best for soft characters with round shapes, cartoonish characters. Uh, I have found the process lends itself well to that. Uh, if you go back to one of the lines I'm most proud of uh, working on, Mega Man Retro Roto, those were ideal characters for rotocasting, right? Because they're all soft, there's no hard corners, they're slightly cartoonish, so that was a, a perfect fit for it. Uh, Verkill has a lot going against him in terms of being a rotocast figure. Now, you can go to Kino Kanaya, you can go to Mitsuya Supermarket, and you can get little common Rider 4-inch figures that are rotocast and do have a pretty good detail, but uh, obviously limited articulation. You, typically, they don't move at the hips. Um, you know, it, it, it can be done on some level, but I don't think the detail is quite right. I don't think there's a lot of playability when you rotocast four-inch figures. Um, Verkill also is incredibly reed thin, and I don't think that the amount of detail and the thinness of the real estate would allow a rotocasting procedure. Now, let's turn table, stop the record, and let's talk how this would be approached if it was indeed the Trilobite King. Um, I mean, I, I suppose that vinyl could be a way to do the Trilobite King if he ever gets revealed, right? Which I have not, is not a foregone conclusion. I, I'm not, we may never get to the Trilobite King, right? My, my corporal body may expire prior to uh, his big unveiling. Who knows? Um, so if Trilobite King is much more massive than a standard Knight of the Slice figure, um, is vinyl and rotocasting a way to bring that character to life? Potentially. Um, that idea has a lot of things working against it, if we're being honest. One is that, you know, amongst the factory that I use, vinyl has really skyrocketed. Um, recently, I tipped off patrons to an unpainted hob that I put in the store. I only had a handful of them, very small amount. And uh, obviously, it sold right away. It pays to be a patron for things like that. But I had to punch in as I'm, you know, creating the item on my store. I have to punch in the price that I'm selling it at, and I like to punch in the cost of that figure. And then that calculates my margin. It tells me what is the percentage I'm making on every sale. And that hob figure has the distinction of being one of the least profitable <laughs> figures I've ever had on my store. It is abysmal. You could probably argue that I lost money selling that item. Uh, but I felt it was a nice little thank you to the patrons who have stood by this for so long. And, uh, you know, having losing a bit of money on a small run of figures every now and then, you know, if it makes my customers happy, uh, I think that's worth it in some respects. So a small figure like Hob has a terrible margin and could be argued it is detrimental for me to sell them. A bigger figure like the Trilobite King in vinyl, which is not a format of toy that every single customer on my store buys, 
uh, it gets even more arduous. So it's it's tough. It's um, this is part of the reason why I'm playing a very long game with the Trilobite King. I'm not in any hurry to introduce him. Uh, this is all because you know I'm going to have to answer all these questions for myself, and frankly, I have enough work right in front of me, so uh, I am delay, 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 delaying on this. Next up, we got Joe with the new year upon us. I was wondering if you feel the pressure to outdo yourself from the previous year pertaining to either the amount of figures made or the simple wow factor. Do you have that need to continuously raise the bar? Uh, This is a really fantastic question and it is something I think about a lot. I would say that 2021 was really me feeling a ton of pressure to outdo myself and raise the bar and produce a record number of new figures and have record my own cassette tape and launch a fake band and do an online convention and interview these creative people I really like. So I definitely sort of, you know, seized my engine last year with all of that going on simultaneously, not to mention our collaborations and everything else. Um, This year, I am taking it easy and I'm going to spend more time cultivating better experiences. And that's probably not going to look much different from any other year for a customer. This would not be perceived as a slowdown. But as I sort of get older, as I enter into the seventh year of this, I have a little more wisdom and I can kind of, you know, I can step more thoughtfully and slowly into a better, more deeper experience. Um, there was a, uh, a great book written by a very funny MMA fighter, Forrest Griffin. Um, and he talked about how he would always, at the end of a round, he would simply slowly get back on his feet and slowly walk to his corner, right? And it didn't matter if he was rippling with energy, if he won the round, if he lost the round, if he was injured, if he felt great, he would do the same thing. He would methodically and slowly rise to his feet walk back to his corner, kind of breathe deep. And whoever he was fighting would always spring to their feet after the first round. And then the second round, they'd jump back up. And then by the third round, they were sort of moving slower and sandbagged. They they looked like they were hurt and so on and so on. And Forrest did this because the judges took note of your sort of fatigue level. And if he was always going very slow and very thoughtful, he appeared consistent throughout the entire match, and that left an imprint on the judges. Even if Forrest was going slow because he was hurt and he didn't have the shit beaten out of him, they wouldn't know the difference, right? He was always sort of using the same composure, the same thoughtfulness. And I always liked that analogy. I, I think that there's there's some kind of universal truth to that. And so this year is more about rising slowly at the end of a round and, you know, sauntering back to my corner. Um, I am beyond super excited to ship out this first action figure of the Millennia parcel in February. Uh, I mean, if everything goes as planned, I'm going to, I'm going to catapult that sucker out of here as soon as it's February 1st and as soon as everybody's sort of been charged for their second month. And I think that the quotient that was missing out of my project 
over the past couple of years was simply time, was just having the time to really lean into the characters and the story and what is going into these boxes. I didn't have that luxury the past three years because, you know, shipping 200 plus figures every 30 days, including store orders, is an insane task. And nobody should should be able to do that. And obviously I was not able to do that indefinitely, but uh, it was a crazy experience. And so, you know, in some respects, I'm, I'm trying to not compete with myself this year. I'm trying to just make things better and deeper, a deeper impact. But at the end of the day, I am a competitive person. You know, I do make toys because I think I'm one of the best toy designers. And I create characters because I think I'm a great writer. And I want to, I enjoy reading the stuff I write. I enjoy listening to the music I make. And maybe that's completely cross-wired and egotistical, but it seems that other people enjoy this stuff too. So however I may sort of frame this year and my thoughtfulness and, and slowing down a pitch, I'm always going to have that burning ambition to be the best at what I'm doing, or at least be in the upper echelon of creative people or toy makers or whatever the category is. So I guess the answer to the question is simultaneously yes and no, but uh, I definitely am trying to view this next 12 months through a completely different lens and really get to the plutonium isotope of what makes this project great. I also think, just one last final thought here, um, trying to outdo yourself can be a very short-sighted impulse, right? Because if you are in competition with what your previous work is, uh, you are sort of not appreciating your previous work. And you could be sort of aiming for perfection, which is something that doesn't exist, right? It's an elusive quality. So, you know, I, I think if, you're, if your game plan is only to outdo yourself, uh, you know, like, for example, if I was embarking on this year saying, okay, I'm going to tool five brand new figure sculpts, um, I would no doubt go bankrupt and sort of, you know, be out of business. So I, I do think temperance of that impulse is super important as well. But all in all, great question, Joe. Thank you. Next up, we're entering the Tomimoto zone with Lance Tomimoto's question. Advice if you don't get along with your co-worker. This is a good one. And I think we've all been there. Assuming, I'm assuming most people listening to this uh, podcast have worked a day in their life. Um, so I think the immediate framing you need for this is to understand that, thank God, it's only a co-worker, Right? Be grateful of that fact because there are plenty of people in life and there may be times in your own life when you're going to have to cohabitate with people you don't like. You know, there's plenty of people out there that don't like their partner, their spouse, their husband, their wife. There's plenty of people out there that don't like their in-laws or even their own family members. 
And those are much more unextractable relationships. You know, you can't really get out of those. With a coworker, you have a finite time in which you have to interact with somebody, right? It maybe it's nine to five, maybe it's a variation of that. But your obligation in the grand scheme of your life is not beyond that, and it is not beyond the constructs of the office or warehouse or you know whatever the sort of location of your employment may be. So I would sit with that truth. I would, you know. Push your mind back to that in the instances you find yourself really exasperated by this coworker. Just remind yourself, this is a coworker. This is not, you know, <laughs> this is not a bigger, uh, bigger obligation than that. I think historically, when I've felt this way, in some cases, I actually ended up really liking that coworker. Right? This kind of goes back to Jungian psychology and and this idea of the shadow complex, you know, the things you don't like in somebody are a part of you. You're you're just projecting it onto them. So, you know, it's not uncommon for initial revulsion to end in in kind of a close bond. Now, that's not applicable in every situation. Obviously, some people are just fucking assholes and, you know, they're not going to change. You could possibly try a charm offensive I will give you a, a little peek in. Um, there's a there's a service nearby that is crucial to my business. Not naming names, not naming institutions, but going into this place uh, is notorious for uh, you know disgruntled workers, people in bad moods. Yet these are crucial people that help sort of move the gears around. I guess you could. You could transpose any government agency, right? This is kind of the reputation. And understandably, and, and sort of firsthand, I have experienced these people generally not being in a great mood when I go in there. So, Christmas time comes around, I bake them cookies, and I brought it in on a big tray. And I don't necessarily like these people, but I do count on them, and they do do hard work. And guess what? It has been flowers and rainbows since then. They've been so happy to accommodate any sort of special request. Um, it really changed the dynamic of things. Now, is everybody deserving of this charm offensive? Uh, you know, your mileage may vary, but I've certainly used it. Uh, people generally like to receive food, bring in a case of donuts, you know. Whether or not this is going to sort of bring about the meaningful change that you may need, um, I can say it has worked. There used to be at, a, at one of the first companies I worked for, there was a uh, kind of a CFO type character. That, that's being a little too highfalutin. They, it was more of an in-house accountant, right? And this guy had to sign off on your expenditures. And this was a job with a lot of travel, so you really didn't want this fucking guy scrutinizing, you know, the $5 sandwich you had when uh, you were at an airport. And this guy was a stickler. He would scrutinize that stuff. So, uh, stopped by Krispy Kreme on my way to work. The light was on, so the donuts were hot. Brought them in, handed out the donuts, and then handed, it, <laughs> handed over my expense receipts. <laughs> and guess what? Not a fucking problem anymore. The guy had 
you know, glazed sauce all over his face, and he was more than happy to just uh, sign his name to all of it. So, that is a strategy. It can work. Is it a manipulation? Sure, but, you know, what is not a manipulation in life? The final thing I'll, I'll offer is uh, that, you know, if you try to have a, a tiny piece of class consciousness, you will see that your co-workers' goals in life and needs and wants align with you, right? They do not align with the bosses or the managers or the business at large. You have much more in common with your coworker than you do with the higher-ups there. And this is a bit more harder to get to, harder to extract, but um, if you can ponder that and you can kind of get a feeling of solidarity, that can sometimes help uh, in these workplace situations, you know, I, I, I'm not familiar with what you do offhand, but typically coworkers need to rely on one another to keep everything moving. So there is a sort of, if you want to call it a shared misery, um, it's there, it's present, but you do have to sort of think about that. You have to be sensitive to it. So I hope all of this uh, helps you kind of frame this predicament. And I do wish you luck with it. Next up, Brent Lawson. When do you think we will see the material sale you spoke about a few months back? I know there are a few ninjas out there that have been Frankenstein. 2022 needs more ninjas. Um, so I will make a confession. I don't actually have any ninjas on order or sitting in the workshop. Um, there's a real question mark if there's going to be ninjas in 2022, but... I think it's a safe assumption. I think I can probably uh, get a few things rolling before the end of the year. Uh, but there are not any sort of, there's not a hidden cache of ninjas per se. The, the uh, sorry, material store revamp is largely going to be incremental and subtle. You guys actually saw the first beginnings of that this previous week. There was a Patreon uh, advance heads up about the Desert Rat black and white base bodies. Those have uh, been added to the store. The unpainted hob was also part of this material re-upload. Um, and I have some other things on deck. Uh, there's actually going to be, I'm pretty sure this is 99% in place. There's going to be a big kind of army builder set. That's two different figures, a bunch of accessories, all relatively close to the same color. It's not an exact color match, but all within the same kind of color scheme. And uh, that should theoretically be hitting the store next Tuesday during our very first sale of 2022. I believe that will be January 11th, and we will do a live stream, and it will be our, at our normal time of 7 p.m. Eastern time starting off on Twitch, and then the store opens at 7.30, obviously. So I think uh, throughout the year, you will see sort of more stuff pop up in the material store. Um, I don't know if 2022 is going to be the year where we finally have one style of every figure unpainted in the material store. The financials of that can be very tricky, right? Because every unpainted figure that I put in the material store is going to sell less than a sort of official release. So it's tricky and something I kind of have to have as a tack on when I'm placing orders, but uh, we're definitely going to make a lot of progress in that uh, regard. Next question from Ian Amling. 
How is Patreon 2022 going to work? Will there be an auto-deduction from my account, or am I going to opt-in like I did in 2021? Uh, so there are there's quite a bit of posts and podcasts about this year. It is already underway. Uh, the fact that Ian was able to post this question on the Patreon means you've already been renewed, uh, likely in a monthly sense. I believe you're a monthly customer. Um, if for some reason you did want to sign up for the full year, you have until January 31st. Uh, again, you can check out my older posts. They show you where to opt in to pay annually on Patreon. It is under your account. Um, so hopefully that explains it. And again, uh, once January is over, no more enrollment for the upper tiers, only opportunities when people drop out. So keep that in mind. Continuing forward, John Emmett has a question here. I've been very privileged in my life to go to Disney World multiple times. I'm very fond of the immersive experiences some of their attractions create. Some of my fondest memories of my family take place in and around there. Blue Sky question, if you had the opportunity to create a Night of the Slice experience with the budget and scope of a high-end theme park attraction, what would you create? A dark ride a la The Haunted Mansion? A simulation like Star Tours? A stunt show like Indiana Jones? interested in your thoughts well i say why not all of them right if we're just sort of uh doing a blue sky scenario why not combine all of them into a massive theme park for knights of the slice why not i will say um having been to both disney world and disneyland within the last five years um you know you can't help but get sucked in you know, it doesn't matter how jaded you are, how much, you know, you might rant about Disney on a podcast. Uh, the charm is there. It is alive. These are sort of magical places. Great regret of my life is that we let my little nephew decide which park we were going to. And I really wanted him to say Avatar. This was prior to Galaxy's Edge sort of being open. I wanted to go to Pandora. And he picked the Magic Kingdom instead of Pandora. So I still have not experienced uh, the wonderful world of James Cameron and uh, that theme park. I very much want to do that. Um, I am I am blue skin pilled, if you know what I mean, if you take my parlance. So I, I do think like the, the in-world immersive experiences are probably what Disney does best. And Galaxy Edge is a fantastic example of that. Even somebody like me that has had such a uh, you know, love-hate relationship with Star Wars, leaning towards the hate aspect of it in later decades. Um, it is, it is magical, right? Like that is that is the best way to kind of describe it. And uh, you can have a lot of fun there. We went. Uh, it was myself, Matt Dowdy, and um, some of the uh, Japanese independent makers. We all went there after Decon, and it was a lot of fun. Those maniacs stayed for like a 12-hour stretch. I was good for about two hours, and then I went back to my hotel and took a nap. Um, but, you know, a lot of fun. The The idea that there are nooks and crannies where you find secret things, the idea of stores sort of selling in-world product, like, I, I love that stuff. I think it's, it's really fantastic and transformative. Um, 
if I was a kid, you know, being as hyped as I was on the original Star Wars trilogy and I got to go to Galaxy's Edge, just my mind would have fucking exploded. I mean, we had Star Tours and that was pretty incredible to me at the the young age I first went. Um, But really, like, I, I can only imagine what Galaxy's Edge must be like if, if you're at that formidable age. Maybe the only thing I would want in my Night of the Slice theme park that would differentiate itself from something like Pandora or, you know, Galaxy's Edge would be more leaning towards the Westworld variety where there's, um, you know, gun shootouts and whorehouses and things like that. That, that might be an interesting point of differentiation for the pitch deck. Next question from Thomas Bucci. Several people have made and sold exclusive items for physical slash online toy pizza con over the years, such as custom painted figures, modified figures with new parts, parts accessory kits, and even play sets. If one wanted to make and sell an item for the con, are there any special guidelines they need to be aware of or to follow before they go through all the hard work and trouble of making something to sell? It's a very good question. So, uh, historically, everybody that's done a sort of custom around toy pizza con or set up as a vendor at the very first Toy Pizza Con. These were all people that were either invited or contacted me with wishes to do so. And in the in the latter years when it's been an online con and people have made goods to correspond, uh, that has either been me sort of reaching out to them and saying, hey, this is what we have going on, this would look good, or it's a maker who's already established who comes to me and says, I have this idea, I would really like to do this, and then I try to align it with an online event to give them a little bit more exposure. So the key things here are people are have the idea fully fleshed out and presented to me. And these are makers who are already making things, selling them online, have e-commerce already set up and ready to go. So it's not an ideal platform for a first-time maker to kind of get their feet wet. Typically, everybody has been an established name in the indie toy game, typically in the sort of resin side of things. So I think that those are important metrics by which anybody can measure their own project by. Does your project, is it of the same quality as somebody like Scott Page, who made that fantastic mountain backdrop, vac forming those in his workshop, uh, you know, just across the river from me? Is your work and is your brand name as recognizable as Omni Res, who did the Spice Fleet conversion kits that let you have, uh, you know, our Spice Fleet character sit down with a chair and with a blaster? Or even going back to our very first in-person Toy Pizza Con, somebody like Pierre Aramax Kalanazaga, one of the best customizers in the game, is your work on the same level as, as Pierre? You know, these are the, the people you should measure your project against, and if you feel confident that you're in that sort of rarefied air, then by all means reach out and uh, have a very concise pitch or a very concise idea of what exactly it is you want to do, how many you want to make, etc., etc. Still a big question mark if there will be an in-person Toy Pizza Con in 2022. Uh, Given where we are with coronavirus today, I'm leaning towards no, absolutely fucking not, but we'll see if the spring brings about, uh, you know, another downturn. Um, Really could not say a gun to my head right now. Next up, Sean Gordon. Would it be possible to create a female head with a glyos port 
in it, allowing to switch out different hairstyles that have a glios peg. I'm thinking of something similar to how the Classic Knight has the port for the helmet slice armor. Or would the hair be too soft to peg in like that? Thank you. Sean, uh, this is something I've thought about a lot and actually did designs for, right? And I did this for both a male and both a female style head. Uh, there are a couple problems working against this, and ultimately, I'm, I probably will never move forward with this specific idea. Um, let me give you some examples, because I don't think this has ever really worked correctly. It's been done quite a few times, and in my opinion, it always looks like shit. So, the recent G.I. Joe Classifieds Lady J, uh, that was an abysmal failure in terms of having swappable hair versus a hatted head. Um, they don't look right, they don't stay in place, and when they are put on there, there's a very big, noticeable seam line, and it looks like, you know, she's wearing a wig. Boss Fight Studios did this with their sort of wizard character, the name escapes me at the moment. Uh, they had different hairstyles, and it, again, it just looked mostly like somebody wearing a wig that was not quite sitting right on the head. So you're sort of left with one of two options. Either you have an incredibly tight fit, like the Classic Knight with the head slice, which is extremely difficult to remove, and you can actually do damage to your figure by trying to remove it. Or you have a much looser fit, allowing for swappability, but giving you this very prominent seam line and having the hairpiece sort of float above the head slightly in a way that looks like, you know, they're, they're sort of Liberace uh, trying to pull off a, a bad weave. So for me, it's a non-starter. Female heads in particular have been very difficult to pull off for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of which is, in case you haven't noticed, all the female heads I've done have relatively short hair so that they will fit on most body types and not have their hair sort of acting as an inhibitor to sitting correctly on the shoulders. Um, you know, there's, there's endless amounts of technical difficulties in, in doing female heads and doing them correctly. And uh, that's why I haven't sort of expanded that gender in the toy line at, at a pace that is matching with my sort of will and desire to do so. Next up, a good question from JT Gravile, I believe. In a previous podcast, you mentioned you had synthanasia. I'm curious in what form it manifests for you. Personally, mine is chromothin... Chromo... Chromethensia. Chromethensia. Hope I'm saying that right. Which is essentially sound equaling color. And I've always found that helped with music. I'm curious if you have... Uh, if you were similar or if it was making your musical it exploits more fun. Uh, so I had to look up the different varieties of this because I, I don't think I was aware that there were very specific sort of breakoffs uh, from this. So I am for sure and have always been graphene color synthanasia, which is certain letters and numbers are associated with specific colors. That has always been prevalent in my life, and it's, you know, maybe I should back up. For those who don't know what synthanasia is, it's essentially... Your brain is wired in a way in which your senses cross over in ways that are hard to describe and may not make sense to people that don't possess synthanasia. This is a very rare, I don't want to call it a disorder, but a rare sort of uh, unique uh, mindset. <laughs> um, essentially, you perceive smells, tastes, 
colors, things like that in a very different way. Uh, and usually it is like stacking different senses on top of each other. So in my case, one of the, the uh, ways this manifests is graphamine, if I'm saying that right, color synthanasia. Certain letters or numbers are associated with specific colors. So, you know, seven is always going to be purple for me. I, you know, and it's an automatic, very visceral recognition of that. Maybe colors don't have any color associated with them for you guys. Maybe they do. I do not believe I have sound to color synthanasia, although I, I have a very good understanding and appreciation for people that do have that and just des and describe sort of sound in that way. Uh, Kanye West famously has done like some some drawings of how he perceives sound and I think that that is you know uh, been uh, an advantage for him when it comes to sort of making beats and uh, marrying influencers. The one that I didn't know actually had a name is lexical gustatory synthanasia. Certain words or sounds evoke different tastes. This is a fairly rare type of synthanasia. This I absolutely have and it actually expands beyond that. When I perceive a letter or number to have a color, there's also a taste associated with it and and oftentimes a smell like it a very real triggering of a olfactory response for me i know some people experience uh auditory synthanasia which is like literally they're hearing sounds that don't exist and they're triggered by different senses or um mirror synthanasia where uh if they see somebody get tapped on the shoulder they feel a tap on their shoulder i, I don't experience either of those two but what I do have, which I, I don't know I've ever seen really clearly defined, and I'm assuming it is part of synthanasia, is uh, perception of colors that don't exist. And I'm not exactly sure how to describe that other than I sort of see two simultaneous colors in one color, if that makes sense. And, and a lot of this uh, spills over to dreams. Like I dream of colors that don't exist and I wake up feeling very sad that I'll never be able to make a plastic in that color or paint a painting in that color. And I, I, I am sort of at a loss for words in how to articulate that, but uh, I often have this dream of this, this color that is sort of simultaneously orange and pink. And saying it's orange and pink simultaneously is sort of robbing it of the vibrance in which I see it in my unconscious mind. It is like a living, moving color. Um, and I do perceive colors in real life that way. They, they seem to be, uh, I don't know, phasing or shifting a little bit, right? For me, this has been, I think, an advantage, especially in terms of toy design, where the color story is really everything. Like, that is what I'm offering to people. I am kind of trying to translate an idea, a synapse firing in my brain into a color scheme that's on a plastic figure that people can hold and experience. But I guess at the end of the day, I don't know if people are perceiving the colors I put down there in the same way as I see them in my mind's eye. But I think if you stack the entire library of Knights of the Slice figures against any other toy line, um, with the exception of most toy lines in the late 90s, I suppose, it, it probably stands out as having very diverse, very dynamic, and very saturated 
colors, right? Especially if you're stacking against anything sort of in the military uh, genre of, of action figure lines. Uh, one final thing that um, I experienced, but I don't know how unique it is. I don't know if it's on the sort of scale of Synthanasia. Uh, scent recall. So scents, very specific scents, give me a total recall back to wherever it is I sort of first encountered that scent or uh, had the most sort of uh, exposure to such a scent. So very specific types of cologne, uh, incense, candles, things like vanilla. All that has a way of like triggering this kind of downpour of memories in, in very vivid clarity for me as well. So, uh, you know, I don't know how unique this is. I, I don't think it's a superpower, more say. I think it's just kind of a misconnection of certain wires. Uh, and I'd venture to guess that probably most people experience a little piece of some of this, right? Must be. So anyway, great question. Next up, Isaac Carmen. When I search for toy pizza toys with Google Lens, it gets confused and shows a mix, a lot of mixed results from various toy lines. Are the influences slash homages deliberate or intuitive or some of both? Well, I think this is the, the greatest compliment I've ever been paid by Google. And also, I think this is a sign that we are doing things right. We are confusing the almighty algorithm. In all its vast, expansive knowledge of human existence, it cannot process what a Night of the Slice toy is. I think that's fantastic. Like. There, that means to me that I'm not leaning too heavily on a direct, literal translation of an homage. I'm making things that are confusing the machines because they're not just a He-Man repaint or they're not just a Boba Fett color scheme. You know, these are uh, obviously very powerful items and I think they could help us win the eventual war against the machines. I think this is all a really fantastic development. And I take it as a high compliment that I'm confusing them. Influences and homages for me are, they may be deliberate, but then I have an impulse in myself to kind of swerve, right? And, and put a little spin on it and, and change things a bit. You're going to see this in action in 2022, specifically in the action figure of the Millennia Club. Um, there are a lot of zigs and zags. So, you know... I, Philosophy-wise, I, I really have a hard time just kind of translating an homage one-to-one. -one. I always got to find a new angle or a new twist to put on it. Next question from Eric Valverde. Do you recall any time where you went from a blank sponge to having certain tastes seemingly overnight? When I was younger, it took I took in every movie with nearly no critique, but I remember walking out of the original Independence Day thinking, they want me to eat up this crap just because it was hyped and pretty? Ever since then, I've had a distaste for sloppily written nonsense, especially on big budget films that have the funds to hire a decent team of writers. Have you had any sudden turning points that set the foundation for what you like in film or other entertainment? So we're talking about the birth of cynicism, which uh, coincidentally is also what the, uh, you know, Western white world called World War One. Um, I, uh, I, I guess it would, it would have been pretty similar to you, 
uh, although I did like Independence Day, um, Batman and Robin. Like, going and seeing that film, I remember I went with my dad and my sisters, and uh, we all came out of it like, what the fuck? You know, like, I, I think it's, look, I, I, people certainly consume bad films when they're younger, but you're, you don't have your antenna up necessarily until a certain age. And uh, seeing Batman and Robin, you know, at this point, I had only seen fantastic Batman movies, right? And I had watched them over and over again. I, you know, I had the VHS of the original Batman and Batman Returns. I could find no fault in either of those films, and I loved them dearly and watched them over and over again. And still to this day, I think, you know, they both hold up pretty well. I know not a lot of people love Batman Returns quite the same way, but... I think they're both pretty phenomenal. Um, going in and, and watching it, almost immediately, I knew something was wrong. Um, the soundtrack is still amazing. It's one of the best film soundtracks out there. You guys should check it out. There's a lot of great songs on there. But, um, yeah, that would that would have been sort of the, the birth of my inner critic, for sure. Sorry, wait, hold the phone. I had to look it up, actually. Uh... I meant Batman Forever, which was 1995. I do not think I have seen Batman and Robin ever in my entire life. Uh, so yes, it would have been Batman Forever, Val Kilmer, Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones. We all left that film thinking, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is this? So um, there you have it. Next up, a question from Jerry Bow. Will the current iteration of Death be the only use of the black and red hyperhead, or might it rear its head again down the line? So for those who haven't read the Reforging Olympus ebook, uh, you sort of need to do that. There's some pretty crucial events that transpire in that tale. Um, you are referring to Hadith, and Hadith, um, I believe that that is going to be the only iteration that utilizes the black and red hyperhead. Um, so for those who aren't patrons, there was a pretty enticing two-pack offered up to patrons at the end of last year. And um, I'm trying to figure out, I have scant few left over, and I'm trying to figure out the best way to kind of make those available. Um, what I might do is add to the store a sort of Patreon unlock section, and that would have some of the older Action Figure of the Month Club styles, and then some of the exclusive figure offers that have happened last year for patrons, things like the uh, Thanksgiving three-course meal and um, the uh, Reforging Olympus two-pack. So I guess like the the future of Hadith and that specific paints design really depends on what happens to the character next. Um, but if you, for some reason, if people missed out on that two-pack, I'm trying to figure out the best way, again, to uh, make there be a public offering, but it's going to be really, really tight when it does launch. Next up from Gabe Tovar, what toy company do you wish was still around? For me, it is Joyride Studios. They are one of the earliest toy companies I remember making toys based on popular video game franchises in a grand scale. I never had a chance to get their Game Pro slash Nintendo Power toy lines, but I did have a few of their Halo, Halo 2 figures. They really stood out in playability and quality for the time. They played a big part of my childhood growing up in the 2000s. That is a frightening thought to me. Uh, I really wonder what other licenses they could have handled if they were still around, especially now that 
Just about every video game franchise has a toy line out there, many which vary in quality. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of very pleasant memories of Joyride Studios. I actually was on their review list, so they used to send me a ton of shit. It was pretty amazing. Uh, at the time, I was writing for a website called MillionairePlayboy.com, which I think is still around in some form or fashion. Um, but uh, I also, that would have been around the same time I entered into the actual toy industry in my first gig and job. And, um, you know, I think that was a really formidable time. And I was sort of, you know, the youngest employee at a company screaming at the top of my lungs that the companies I worked with had to start doing video game characters. Like, this was a huge untapped market. And really, Joyride were the only people out there doing it, with the exception of Toy Biz. And, uh, you know, they, of course, did Lara Croft, which I believe was a Mark Mosman deal. Uh, they were doing their sort of Street Fighter line. So there, there were a couple people sort of dipping a toe in. But uh, if you look at the landscape today, it's like, oh yeah, you if you're not making video game figures, you're really not like a player in that space. So, um, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think they did good stuff. Their Samus was not a perfect figure by any means, but it was like the definitive Metroid figure that we'd always wanted. I had, I sort of pieced together a Samus when I was a kid out of a Dino Riders figure. Um, I guess if I had to pick, like, one company I still wish was around. You know, I, I liked uh, Palisades quite a bit. I liked what they were doing. I, I had many friends that worked there. And, um, you know, back when I was on the sort of uh, tour circuit, doing all the Comic-Cons and Wizard Worlds, we would always be set up next to Palisades, and, I, you know, I built a, a good rapport with those guys. I, I didn't collect every line they did, but I thought at least they were doing interesting things. Moving along to Quentin Russo, before the soft good bomber jacket was released, I had a similar idea for the Hyper Knight. Maybe a brown material style or paint deco jacket, something with cyberpunk slash X-Men slash TMNT vibes. Uh, Quentin, we are, we are on the same wavelength, my friend. I actually do have and had uh, a couple different takes on that very idea, where um, the Hyper Knight body is sort of painted to look like it has a jacket on. Uh, it may still be a design that gets reused, but as you mentioned, with the introduction of two different sizes of brown leather jackets, it became a bit redundant to proceed with that, but we'll see. I know at one point I had a sort of Hyper Knight Rex design that utilized that very sort of deco plan. Next question from Brett Barnacle. Any plans to do another style of weapon pack for the store? I love the shotgun sword head combo currently offered, but I'm always a huge fan of seeing weapon sets being released. Um, there may be other paint styles of that very set, but uh, likely I'm not going to be doing any new weapon sets or anything like that. Reason being, that same sort of accessory set that you mentioned that has been in stock for nearly four years right so uh not a huge seller it is a, a very good item to help people kind of boost their ranks and i'm you know i ordered enough of them so they would be in stock as an evergreen but uh not something that gets picked up very often and that that product has been sitting there for a very long time so um i guess 
the practical answer would be I would run a new weapon set whenever those sold out completely. Which is likely not anytime soon. And with that, I have fulfilled my earthly duty to you all. I have given the A's to your Q's. And uh, I'm going to go and make a breakfast sandwich. I hope everybody has enjoyed this episode. If you're not a patron for some reason, go to patreon.com slash Destasio. Lots of great, interesting things coming up this year, especially in January. It's going to be very exciting. And of course, February, we kick off Action Figure of the Millennia Club. And uh, boy, I'm very excited to get these big parcels out to everybody. It's going to be a lot of fun. So the only thing left to say is pizza out.
This pandemic ain't slowing us down, I'll tell you that much. Fuck that. Thank you. 